It's a joy to be with you this evening, to open up the Word of God with you. If you would please join me in the book of 1 Thessalonians, a study we've been in on Sunday nights this year. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to read our text for us and then we will look at it together. Beginning in verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. As a pastor, I find myself often thinking about the state of the church at large in evangelicalism. I try to keep up with many of the issues that the church is facing, as well as many of the issues that the church is causing. There have been many fads that have been experimented with by the contemporary church. Things such as the charismatic movement, ecumenicalism, the seeker-friendly movement, the young, restless, and reformed movement, complete with its skinny jeans and props, and now what I consider to be the politically correct movement. And one of the biggest temptations facing the church today is to capitulate or compromise on its historic biblical convictions to suit the push of the culture. So, just like the seeker, sin, the seeker movement, where the culture was allowed to dictate how worship was conducted within many local churches, the politically correct movement is now allowing the culture to dictate what is morally right and wrong. And we see this with capitulation regarding marriage and family and how children are being cared for. Unfortunately, the church at large is beginning to bow their knee to the wrong type of diversity. What this is showing us is that the reality of many people in these churches are not true believers. And so the conclusion we have to come to is that the so-called evangelical church today is made up of many who think they are in Christ, but in reality are not. And that is becoming evident by the politically correct decisions that they are making. All that to say is that my prayer and the prayer of all the elders at this church are that you, Countryside Bible Church, continue to be conformed to the image of Christ and that you do not budge on the biblical convictions that this church was originally founded upon. Unfortunately, it doesn't take much to begin down that slide of compromise. And so it is of vital importance that you and I cling to Christ, the vine, who is the lifeblood of our sanctification. This evening, I want you to see in the text that is before us, Paul's exhortation to this model church in Thessalonica to stay the course and finish the race. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 
chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Our text this evening is the second prayer that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. And in this text, I want you to note tonight two motivating components of Paul's prayer which compel believers to continue to pursue spiritual growth to the end. And the first component that is seen in verses 11 and 12 is this. It is the petition for persevering in sanctification. The petition for persevering in sanctification. Look again at verses 11 and 12. As Paul says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Before Paul prays specifically for the sanctification of the Thessalonian believers, he begins by praying to God to direct his way back to this church that was so dear to him. As we have seen in our study this far, this is a central theme that runs through this letter. Paul loved this church. He was constantly thinking of these saints. He was constantly praying for these saints. He was incredibly encouraged by their their progress in the faith. They had become imitators of Paul in his ministry, which he noted in verse 6 of chapter 1, and they had become imitators of the churches of God in Judea as they endured suffering, according to chapter 2, verse 14. At the end of chapter 2, Paul calls this church his glory and his joy. Paul's heart was knit together with this church, so much so that when he was prevented from going, he sent his closest companion in the faith, Timothy, to check on them and then to deliver him that report. And as Wes noted last time, the report that Timothy brought back to Paul was exceedingly good news. Paul was full of joy over what God was accomplishing in this young church and in the faith, and and he desired deeply to, to be with them and to see them and to continue to build them up in the faith. That was that was Paul's desire. That was Paul's heart. Paul wanted to be used as a means in their sanctification process. He begins this prayer that we have read with the biblical pattern we find Jesus giving to his disciples and throughout the rest of the New Testament by directing the prayer to God the Father. God, his Father. In the Greek language, the pronoun himself is placed at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. It was God himself whom Paul was laying out his requests to. Paul affirmed that it was, it was God alone who had the sovereign power and ability to accomplish what he was asking for. And notice also Paul's commitment to include the Lord Jesus Christ in addition to the Father in, in his petition. This shows us Paul's high Christology. 
his belief in the deity of Christ and, and in the triunity of God. Paul's prayer here in this chapter was not some kind of general thoughts to someone above in the clouds, some, some higher power. It was to God his Father and to Jesus Christ his Son specifically and exclusively. The first petition that Paul asks for is that both he and his companions would have their way directed to this church. Now that is to say that Paul wanted God to clear the path, to, to remove any impediment, anything that would hinder them from getting to this church so that, so that he could encourage them in the faith and so he could do that in person. Paul prays this to counter the opposition that he and his companions had encountered on several occasions due to Satan hindering them from getting there, as he noted earlier on in the book. Paul wanted God to fulfill his plans entirely to get to this church. He wanted no hindrances to be in the way. He wanted to be with these people. He wanted to minister to them. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to rejoice in them. Rejoice with them. Why? What was Paul's ultimate aim in asking God to get him to this church without impediment. I believe it was because he wanted to see this church sanctified. He wanted to see this church, this baby growing model church, continue to grow in their love for Christ and in their faith in God. And this becomes clear as Paul continues his petition for these believers to persevere in their sanctification. And notice how Paul asks for this in verse 12. He says, And may the Lord cause you. He begins by asking the Lord to work in their lives. He clearly understands that for there to be anything happen spiritually, whether it is justification or sanctification, God must initiate the work. Paul recognizes the omnipotence of our great God that he has the ability to produce the type of spiritual maturity in a believer and in a church that will enable them to stay the course and finish the race. I think there are two truths that, that jump right off the page at us as we see those words that are worth mentioning. As you see those words, now may, our, uh, and may the Lord cause you the first truth is this, that God is all-powerful. Uh, don't ever underestimate the power of God to do what is right and what is according to His will. Don't entertain thoughts of a limited God. Don't put God in a box. The one you bring your petitions to is the one who spoke the world into existence with a mere word. The one you bring your petitions to is the one who is sustaining the universe with the word of his power. The one you bring your petitions to parted the Red Sea and caused the ground to be dry. The one you bring your petitions to used trumpets, jars, and human voices to bring the walls of the great city Jericho down. The one you bring your petitions to 
to cause, cause three men to survive a blazing hot furnace unscathed. The one you bring your petitions to shut the mouths of lions to protect his servant Daniel. The one you bring your petitions to open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, and raise the dead. You see, the one that you bring your petitions to is absolutely sovereign over this universe. And he is in complete control of every detail, carrying out his perfect ordained will for his glory. Don't ever underestimate the power of God. Second truth that jumps right off the page is this, that God produces the increase. God must work. He is the first cause. He will carry his will to fruition. And there is nothing that can thwart his sovereign will. Therefore, we must be fully dependent upon him as his children. We can work until we are blue in the face, but if God does not work, there will never be spiritual fruitfulness. So what is it that Paul then petitions the Lord to do on behalf of the Thessalonians? You see it there in verse 11, or in verse 12 rather. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. To increase and abound in love. To increase, that is to, to have more and more love on a constant basis. To abound is, is better translated superabound. It is to exist in, in overflowing abundance. We are to increase and abound in love. This is agape love, the self-sacrificial love, the devoted love. This is, this is the type of love that, that God has demonstrated to humanity and that he has set upon those who are his. This is a love that puts others ahead of oneself and always seeks the greatest good of another person. And who is it that this love is to increase and abound for? You see it there in verse 12. He says, for one another. Now that is, for fellow believers. And he says, for all people. That is, that is unbelievers, including those in authority, according to, to 1 Timothy 2, and, and our enemies, according to Matthew 5, 44. Paul's prayer for these people at this church in Thessalonica was that they would increase and abound in their love for one another and their love for all people. So what does this love to look like? How, how can this be measured, humanly speaking? Well, look at the end of verse 12. Paul says, just as we did for you. Just as we did for you. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, as I also am of Christ. This is what he is exhorting the Thessalonians to. Through his petition to God on their behalf. And this is what he is exhorting us, church, to as well. To, to love one another as Paul and, and his companions loved this church. We are to seek to follow the pattern of love that Paul had for people. A love that was, was undoubtedly powered by the Holy Spirit. He, he desires 
God to cause their love to grow for one another as his love had increased for them. So what did Paul's example of love look like? What kind of love do we as leaders in this church want you to continue to increase and abound in here at Countryside? First of all, let's examine what Paul's love looked like to to the one another's, to, to the believers in this text. His love, I believe, can be summed up in one word, and that is edification. Paul's goal of love was to edify the body of Christ. That is to, to build up the body by way of instruction, by way of encouragement, and by way of exhortation. This is our desire as elders as well. The best way for love to be shown in the context of God's people is to use his means to help one another grow in their knowledge and their love for Christ and in their transformation into his image. As a society, we have gotten wrapped up in a sentimental, touchy-feely love and, and tried to infuse that definition of love upon the church. The love of the world is based on feelings. It's based on sexual desires. It's based on selfishness. It is, it is focused on the feelings and the benefit of oneself. The love of the Bible, and the love that the Bible demands, is kind, is patient, it's gentle. It's focused on others, and it's always to be grounded in the truth. You see, the primary way for leaders to love their people is to equip them in the truth. Paul did this, first of all, through instruction. This instruction came primarily through the the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God corporately, and then individually through, through the discipleship process. This teaching was always for the purpose of his people being brought further into conformity to Christ, driven by a deeper knowledge and and love for God. And this is our primary aim as the leaders of this church, and it is our prayer that you will continue to receive and give instruction, being motivated to do so by your love for one another. But along with instruction in the word, Paul also exemplified love through encouragement. Again, Paul encouraged his church primarily through the word because it is the God of the word who is also the God of all comfort. To help lead a brother or sister in Christ to peace through through the truth when, when things in their life are difficult. That is selfless love. However, Paul also encouraged this church by being a living example of living under and willfully submitting to the providence of God in his life. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul reminds this church that he had imparted both the gospel and his very life to them for their growth and their encouragement. 
And we can assume that the difficulties that Paul had endured, and those difficulties were many, he then communicated to them also for their encouragement. Listen, the way that you submit to God and accept his providence in difficult and tragic situations in your life serves as a loving encouragement to the body of Christ around you. That was much of Paul's life. And this only happens when God works in your life to create this. Tom touched on this in large part this morning, talking about choosing joy in the midst of of difficulties and and trials. And how that's that's when the true colors of of joy show. That's, That's when we truly know that we are rejoicing in the Lord as we are commanded to do. You know, one of the reasons those trials and those tribulations come, and Paul notes this as he talks to the Corinthians, that it's to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ who are also going through hard things. And when you go through difficult times and you come out the backside, having, having entrusted yourself to God and having demonstrated joy in that process, That as others come to you, as you come in contact with other believers who are struggling with with the issues of life and the difficulties that that this fallen world brings, that you can then be an encouragement to them. There's no doubt that when Paul says that he imparted his life to these people, that he was demonstrating to them, he was sharing with them the different things that he had gone through in his ministry, And then he was encouraging them to to be able to face the opposition that was mounting up against them. But again, it only happens when God works in your life to create this. Again, going back to one of the reasons of why God uses trials, why God uses tribulations, why God uses difficulties. Well, there's a third way that Paul exemplified a picture of how their love was to increase and abound to one another, and that was through exhortation through exhortation Paul used the text to call believers to greater Christ likeness to call them to action to challenge their unbiblical theology and their philosophy to correct them to awaken their spiritual lethargy to abandon vain, worldly pursuits, to to pursue the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He exhorted them to set their minds and pursuits on that which is eternal. And he exhorted them to obey even when it is costly and to live in submission to Christ with ongoing repentance. Paul exhorted those who were under his ministry in those ways calling them to conformity to Christ through the word of God. And my prayer is that for us is that we will continue to accept exhortation and be willing to to give it to one another, again, for the sake of Christ. And don't fail to understand that all of these actions of love, the edification, the encouragement, the exhortation, 
They were done with an attitude of love. With an attitude of of humility. With an attitude of of selflessness. With an attitude of sacrifice. With with an attitude of God-centeredness. And we see an example of these attitudes needed in exhortation in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where, where Paul commends the Corinthian church for their, for their godly sorrow over their overt sin. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 with me for a moment. I just want you to see this, this attitude of Paul as he was exhorting this church Verse 3, he says, I do not speak to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced all the more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Again, Paul was, he was overjoyed by the reality that the Corinthian believers had come to repentance. And he was exhorting them to, to, to continue. He was, as it was reported to him, that in their longing, in their mourning, in their zeal, it caused him to rejoice. And as he was encouraged by that, he also wanted to, to let them know that that he was encouraged by their genuine repentance. And and as you read those verses, as you see that, you see this attitude of love, you see this this attitude of of gentleness, even in his his exhortation to to this church. You know, Paul told the Ephesian elders on the island of Miletus that he had not ceased to admonish them daily with tears. While he had been with them. Paul's Paul's attitude toward God's people was was certainly one of of love. He he was endeared to them. He had entrusted himself to them. It wasn't this standoffish relationship where he brought the hammer down and, and they were just in complete fear of things. That was never the Apostle Paul's role. Rather, he, he exhorted them, but he did so with an attitude of love. He edified them. He encouraged them with an attitude of love, with an attitude of sacrifice. Friends, may your attitude of love for one another be evident and continue to increase, as Paul prays for. Now, as you look 
at verse 12, you see that Paul not only prayed for the Thessalonians' love to increase and abound for one another, but it also needed to increase and abound for all people. Sometimes we get stuck there. As we see the world around us and we see the corruption that is just so incredibly evident to us, that I think at times it's harder for us to pray for the world around us than it is to pray for one another. We can take one another's requests, we can we can plead them before the throne of grace, but for us to take those particular people in the world that are living a completely anti-God lifestyle and to, to plead for them before the throne of grace can be more difficult. But Paul is commanding that here because it's a, it's a symptom of a church that's increasing and growing in their sanctification. So what did Paul's example of of love for all people look like? Well, Paul's love for all people that he demonstrated to God's people included things like this. It included evangelism to the lost. It included prayer for the lost. It included prayer for and and obedience to, to those in authority. It included a lack of of retaliation toward his enemies. It included prayer for his enemies. It included doing good for all people. It included remaining at peace with all people as much as it depended upon him. Paul loved all people. But a simple reading of Paul in the New Testament will reveal that his his love for all people did not include coddling their sin or in any way giving approval to their reprobate lifestyles. He confronted sinners with the loving grace of God, calling them to repentance. And let me say this, if you're here tonight and you do not know Christ... You need to repent and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's the greatest act of love that anybody can show to you. It's it's giving you the gospel. That the Lord Jesus Christ came and was born as a baby, as we celebrate in this season. And that he lived a perfect life and that he went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that you and I deserve to pay. And that he rose again three days later, proving that his father had accepted his sacrifice and that he had conquered sin and death. You need to believe in him. That's the most loving message that you can ever hear. It's not that you're doing okay. It's not that you're okay in your sin and and you can just keep on going. No. No. So you need to repent from your sin and place your faith and trust in the only one who can save you from your sin. That, that was how Paul overwhelmingly demonstrated his love for all people. It was through giving the gospel to them. Friends, you and I need to love all people. But we are not called to, to love the way the world defines love, which involves tolerating everything. Our love for all people is branded with holiness. 
And as a result, the greatest love that we can show them is calling them to and then representing that same holiness. God, by his sovereign power, enables us to love as we ought to. And so our prayer is that he would continue to grant us love for all people. This is what Paul petitioned our sovereign God for on behalf of these saints. That they would continue to grow in genuine biblical love for one another. Friends, love for one another is a primary symptom of believers that are being sanctified. You want to see a church that is growing, that is persevering to the end. You want to see a church that is continuing to be sanctified. You see a church that loves one another. That's why Paul prays for this. We are to be persevering in our sanctification as Paul prayed by increasing and abounding in our love for one another. Well, there is a second component motivating component I should say of Paul's prayer which compels us as believers to continue to pursue spiritual growth to the end that I want you to see and that is this it is the purpose of persisting in sanctification the purpose of persisting in sanctification we find that in verse 13 now that Paul has given his petition on behalf of the Thessalonians he gives the purpose which corresponds to that Petition. As you look at verse 13, you see that this verse begins with the word so that, which tells us then that the purpose is coming. He says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in your love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. The purpose is that he, that is God, may establish your hearts. That is to say that he may may cause your entire person to be inwardly firm and committed in a blameless and holy way. That is in a way in which there is no ground for accusation before the absolute standard of holiness who is our God and our Father. At the time when Jesus returns to rapture his church. So here's how verses 12 and 13 work together. The purpose of living a life of selfless, abounding love is so that your hearts will be established in holiness and therefore free from blame in the presence of God when Jesus, the great rewarder and judge, returns for his people. The purpose of Paul's petition is the supreme motivation to continue to grow as a Christian. And that is this, the imminent return of Christ. That's where he lands. He says, so that you may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. This motivation must lead us to obedience, to immediate obedience and urgency in our pursuit of Christ. 
Friends, Christ is going to return at any moment. We believe that that's clear in Scripture, and we believe that we're going to see that here in a few weeks in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4. We believe that the next event in human history is the rapture of the church, that Jesus is going to come back. And so we need to be ready. And how are we ready? We we are ready, we get ready by continuing to grow in our love for one another, by continuing to, to grow in likeness to Jesus Christ. We're getting ready for heaven. And so our pursuit on this earth is holiness because heaven is going to be a holy place. You see, Christians who have no, or I should say so-called Christians, who have no place for holiness in their lives really don't desire heaven at all. Heaven is a place of holiness because that's where God is. He sits on his throne in supreme holiness. And so as we look forward to that day, as we strive in this life, we, we do so wanting to be holy. Why? Because, because our God is holy. And that holy God is sending his son back to get us and take us to be with him. Paul used this motivation a lot. This this should drive us to excel in increasing, abounding in our love for one another. Because one day this holy God is going to return and take us home to be with him. Friends, you and I as God's people ought to be incredibly encouraged and motivated to continue growing in Christ's likeness by by Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian believers. This is what he wanted. This is why he wanted to get there. He just wanted to get there to pal around. I don't know how Paul palled around. I'm sure he had some way of doing it, and I'm sure that would happen. But his desire was to be there so that he could help these believers in the sanctification process, so that he could be there face-to-face to encourage them to, to increase and, and to overflow in their love for one another, so that he could demonstrate that love to them, and so he could encourage them with this, this, this vast motivation that we are one day going to be in the presence of this holy God. So in this life, our goal is to strive to be like him, we love one another is one of the way loving one another is one of the ways that he makes us more like himself. Now I challenge you to evaluate how much you are trusting God when you petition him with your requests. We bring a lot of requests before God. As I was studying this text, I was this this was really impressed upon my heart that that we must really believe the God whom we are petitioning. 
challenge you to do that. I challenge you to evaluate how well you are loving your, your fellow believers in this church and, and those unbelievers that, that you interact with in your sphere of influence. Do you genuinely care about the people in this church? Do you love them? Do you pray for them? Do you sacrifice for them? And do you genuinely love those people whom you interact with on a regular basis who do not know Christ? Who may make you very angry? Who may frustrate you by the way that they're living, by the things that they stand for? When given opportunities, do you pray for them? Do you pray for their souls? Do you share the gospel with them? That that is the way that you love all people. It's not by coming alongside them and coddling their sin. There was no place for that in the theology of the Apostle Paul. (laughs) But it was confronting them lovingly and gently with the gospel of grace saying, there is a way. There is forgiveness with Christ. I challenge you to evaluate that. I challenge you to to evaluate your growth. This past week, this this past month, this this past year, as a believer, I mean, we're getting to that point in time here in the next few weeks where we're going to talk about these New Year's resolutions. And if you made any spiritual resolutions at the beginning of last year, now would be the time to begin to evaluate those. I challenge you to do that. It's, it's good. It's good for us to analyze these things and to think about these things and to see, even, even when growth is slow, are we moving in the direction that the Apostle Paul was praying for? Am I loving my fellow brothers and sisters better now than I did a year ago? Am I more committed to loving those people who frustrate the fire out of me with the gospel than I was a year ago? That's what Paul is praying for. He wanted this model church who was so young in the faith to be a church that that went to the end. To be a church that finished the race. And so that's why he prays this. That's why he prays that they would continue to increase and abound in their love for one another. He wanted them to grow. So I ask you, are you staying the course? Even though you are a part, maybe I'm biased because I have the privilege of serving here as a pastor, but even though you are a part of a model church here at Countryside Bible Church, listen, friends, this is the best church I've ever been a part of in my life. I've been a part of a number of churches. It's a model church. But even though you're a part of a model church like the Thessalonians were. Are you committed to continuing to grow in Christ until he returns to take you home? One day at a time, one step at a time. I pray along with the Apostle Paul as he did in our text that you are. That you will continue to increase and abound in love for one another so that You may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God, 
Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of its saints. We want to finish. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this prayer of the Apostle Paul as we get to look at it now several thousand years later. And we can see why he prays this for this church. That he, he wanted them to finish. He wanted them to be established. And we're challenged by that. We too want to be established. We too want to finish. We too don't want our love to grow cold. We want it to continue to abound, to increase for one another and for all people because that is the work of God in the life of a Christian. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for our time to look into your word this evening. I pray that you will implant this truth upon our hearts and conform us more to the image of Christ as a result of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.